All right, this evening the main subject matter uh, will be Leviticus 17. Uh, last time we were together, uh, we talked about the Day of Atonement, or uh, Yom Kippur, in Leviticus chapter 16. And um, I'm not going to necessarily rehash everything that we saw there, just as a reminder uh, to you, um, again, what the uh, entirety of the book of Leviticus is about Uh, It's trying to answer just one question, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And in order for that um, to be the case, you need three things. You need a holy house, which is the tabernacle uh, in which God resides. And you need blood sacrifices to cover the sin uh, of the sinful people and to to cleanse the the people uh, in, in the midst of which God is living. And you need holiness. And so uh, Leviticus 17 is actually a transition uh, from uh, the description of the sacrifices in the first few chapters of Leviticus and then the discussion of clean versus unclean, which we saw in Leviticus 11 to 15, and then the peak of the Pentateuch, uh, the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. And there's a sense in which I just want to uh, recapitulate a couple of things. Number one, uh, we see that the Day of Atonement, it is uh, for the cleansing of God's house. So, for example, if you will look at Leviticus chapter 16, verse 30, and this is not the only place, but um, it's, it's very evident in verse 30 for the word uh, cleanse and clean appears twice in Leviticus chapter 16. Verse 30, describing the Day of Atonement, it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So the Israelites are being cleansed, and uh, the house of God itself, the tabernacle, is also being cleansed. And if you remember, at the beginning of Leviticus 16, there was a reiteration of the deaths of Nadab and Abihu, which was really the crisis that was... uh, that, that was in need of solution uh, for the, the first day of atonement because the dead corpses of Nadab and Abihu inside of the tent of meeting uh, defiled the tabernacle. And so there needed to be a cleansing of the tabernacle. Uh, but also the day of atonement, as you know, takes place annually. And so that cleansing of the people and that cleansing of the house, that ritualistic cleansing, takes place annually. And then, uh, if, if you remember uh, back when we were talking in Exodus about the tabernacle itself, we, we made the case at that time that the tabernacle was actually a microcosmic picture of the entirety of the cosmos itself. And so, the Day of Atonement, in a sense, uh, is a type and a shadow of the consummation, the great day of judgment, the separation of uh, the righteous from the unrighteous. And you can see that in my second point here. And and the second point, uh, as we think about Leviticus 16 and wrap up from last week, is that the high priest of Israel um, approaches God by going west. And the east and the west are significant things uh, in the Pentateuch. Uh, If you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam is expelled with Eve from Eden, and they are sent east. And there's a sense in which we saw when we were studying through Genesis that the sinners move east, 
and the righteous move west. Right? So the sinners move east, for example, from Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel account. And then at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abram, Abram actually goes west, right, out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he moves to Haran, and then eventually moves into what we would call Canaan today. And so the calling of Abraham is a move from east to west, and in the Day of Atonement, The high priest is moving from east to west. He's approaching God and he's doing so with a sacrifice. He's returning to God's presence. But the only way he's allowed to do that is through blood atonement, which we will discuss further this evening in Leviticus chapter 17. And then if we consider the scapegoat, the scapegoat, uh, in contrast to the high priest on the day of atonement, is actually sent out of the camp to the east. And so the sins of the people and the sinners continue to go east while the high priest and those whom he represents, the righteous, move west toward the presence of God. The two goats, right? one is a slain goat, its blood is being carried west into the presence of God and the scapegoat goes east. They're going in opposite directions. And again, this is a type and a shadow of the consummation the great day of judgment that's coming and the separation of the righteous from the unrighteous, the separation of the sheep and the goats. And so all of that is uh, kind of wrapping up Leviticus 16, the day of atonement. Uh, We talked about expiation and propitiation and all those things. And if you missed that, um, you should head out to Sermon Audio and uh, check that out. So this evening, as we talk about blood atonement, um, In Leviticus 17, it should be obvious to you that we're going to begin tonight in Genesis chapter 9. And if that's not obvious to you, that's okay. But if you would turn with me very briefly to Genesis chapter 9, I want to show you something that is there. Of course, Genesis chapter 9 is uh, the account of Noah after the flood. And I'm not going to read... Uh, the whole chapter, only the first four verses, but I want to point you to something in Genesis chapter 9 uh, that will become uh, important for us this evening as we contemplate Leviticus chapter 17. So, Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Given, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Verse 4. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 9, God gives this prohibition to Noah and his progeny, his sons and, and all of his progeny, um, that they are now... Um, in contrast to the guidance given before the flood, they are now uh, to be, uh, at least allowed to be, carnivorous. And the only prohibition that is placed on Noah at that time is that whatever meat is eaten, it is not to be eaten with the blood in it. Now, uh, we saw in Leviticus 11 uh, and through 15, we saw the clean versus unclean, and there were certain uh, animals that the Israelites were allowed to eat, and there were certain animals they weren't allowed 
uh, to eat and so on, considering uh, animals on the land and also animals within the sea, and we addressed those topics at that time in due course. Um, the point here is that that prohibition uh, to not eat meat with blood in it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9 and Noah, and we will see tonight in Leviticus 17 the full explanation for why that's the case. The Bible between Genesis 9 and Leviticus 17, is silent on why that's the case. But now, in Leviticus 17, God makes it clear to his people why it's so important that meat to be eaten is not eaten with blood. So Leviticus 17, picking up in verse 1. Then the Lord Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them, This is what the Lord Yahweh has commanded, saying, Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or who slaughters it outside the camp and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. The reason is so that the sons of Israel may bring their sacrifices which they were sacrificing in the open field, that they may bring them into the Lord Yahweh at the doorway of the tent of meeting to the priest and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting and offer up the fat in smoke as a soothing aroma to the Lord. And they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. This shall be a permanent statute to them throughout their generations. Then you shall say to them, Any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man also shall be cut off from his people. So, the first half of the chapter this evening deals with Um, the killing, the slaughtering of animals among the Israelites. Now, the the primary purpose of this is to deal with the animals that are being slaughtered for the purpose of atoning sacrifice. That's clear on the face of the text. Okay? You can see that. And in fact, um, you can see that uh, in verse 7 especially, Right? When there's this clear prohibition that the Israelites, and it says, they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. And so it seems as though the Lord Yahweh knows that the Israelites are slaughtering animals away from the tent of meeting, and they're doing it as part of some sort of pagan ritual. Right? It's most likely a pagan ritual which they picked up uh, in Egypt. Right? And of course we know uh, that they also made the, uh, the, the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. So these are an idolatrous people. Uh, we've seen that already in the Exodus accounts. And as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you will see it again and again. And so God puts in place this stipulation that these sacrificial animals must always be brought to the tent of meeting to be slaughtered by the priest so that the blood of the sacrifice can be sprinkled on the holy things, specifically the altar, and so that the fat portions 
verse 6, the fat portions can be offered up uh, to the Lord in a soothing aroma because the fat portions always belong to Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. Now, it's also interesting to note here that some commentators um, speculate um, that uh, this would not only apply to the blood sacrifices, but this would apply to all of the animals that are slaughtered, even the ones that are slaughtered as part of a normal meal. Okay, So, how are the Israelites normally fed during their time wandering in the wilderness? Well, you should know. And remember that the normal food for the Israelites in the wilderness is the manna from God. God feeds them from Sinai all the way through to the time when they cross the Jordan and go over into Jericho. Then the manna stops. And so the manna comes to them for 40 years. However, it seems as though the Israelites, they also, we know, uh, crave meat. And so they're allowed to slaughter animals for the purpose of eating meat. And it seems, perhaps, secondarily, that God is providing this stipulation that even if they're going to slaughter an animal to eat, they also must bring it to the tent of meeting. And again, why? Because it prevents the Israelites from entering, entering into the temptation to idolatry. All right, And so, for example, you can even see uh, this in uh, a couple of Paul's New Testament epistles. It was very common for pagans or Gentiles uh, to offer meat as part of their ritual sacrifices and then subsequently to sell the meat. So, for example, I'm thinking about Romans chapter 14 and the meat offered to idols and the uh, discussion of conscience there. Very common pagan ritual. And it seems as though God is prescribing the tent of meeting even for slaughtering animals for food. And the reason why we might speculate that is if you'd like very quickly to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. There's a bit of a contrast in Deuteronomy 12 with um, Leviticus 17. In Leviticus 12, beginning in verse um, 13, let's pick up. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. And so God is prophesying to the Israelites uh, through Moses that once they go into the land of Canaan, he is going to provide for them a place where they all must go to offer their sacrifices. Now, we know that that originally was in Shiloh, and then ultimately ended up in Jerusalem, of course, with Solomon's temple. But he's prophesying that there will be one place. Verse 15, Deuteronomy 12. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your gates, whatever you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, and as of the gazelle and the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You are to pour it out on the ground like water. You are not allowed to eat within your gates the tithe of your grain, or new wine, or oil, or the firstborn of your herd or flock, or any of your votive offerings which you vow. 
or your free will offerings, or the contribution of your hand. Verse 18, But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and daughter, and your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings. Be careful that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. Verse 20, When the Lord your God extends your border, as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you desire to eat meat, then you may eat meat what Whatever you desire, if the place which the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter of your herd and flock which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your gates whatever you desire. So, here's the contrast, okay? First of all, if we compare, the similarities are many, right? You can't, you can't eat the blood, obviously, and we will see that later in Leviticus 17. However, the Lord now in Deuteronomy 12, in anticipation of them going into the land of Canaan, which is a much larger land than the camp that they currently live in in the wilderness, now God extends the stipulation and says, when you desire to eat meat, you can kill it where you live and eat it. You don't need to come to the one place to slaughter meat that you are going to eat in your homes. And I believe, and I think the commentators believe uh, as well, that 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 stipulation in Deuteronomy 12, uh, 15 through 21 essentially, is in contrast to the stipulation provided here in Leviticus chapter 17. Picking up in Leviticus 17 verse 10. And here's where we will start to discuss the details of blood atonement. And any man from the house of Israel, or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, No person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the sons of Israel, or from the aliens who sojourn among them, in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, You are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And when any person eats an animal which dies, or is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or an alien, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water, and remain unclean until evening. Then he will become clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. Alright, so... Here we have this clear discussion and and prohibition of eating blood uh, inside of the flesh. And Leviticus 17.11, if you are in the habit of underlining or circling a verse in your Bible, uh, Leviticus 17.11 is one of those verses. This is the reason, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 9 verse 4, why God has always prohibited the eating of the flesh with blood blood in it. Verse 11, Leviticus 17. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. 
in essence, what is being described here is life for life substitution. That is what's being described here. That's primarily the purpose. I also believe that there's a secondary aspect to this, um, that in many pagan rituals, uh, blood is eaten or blood is drunk. And so God is also probably secondarily uh, protecting his people from participating in pagan rituals, which we see a prohibition of over and over and over again in the Pentateuch. But primarily, this is a life for life. The blood is spilled by the sacrifice and given as an atonement for the covering of the sins of the sinner who brings the sacrifice. And that blood is spilled out and it is often used to cleanse and to purify the furniture uh, inside of the tabernacle and the tabernacle complex. Because this is a very somber thing when the life of one thing is given to preserve the life of a sinful human being. Okay, very somber. And building on the Day of Atonement. Verse 12, Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, No person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. And what, of course, should be ringing in your ears, and I know that it is, is the, the, the discussion that Jesus has in John chapter 6. So if we go to John chapter 6, and we remember what's going on in John chapter 6, near the, uh, the end of that particular chapter, if we pick up in verse 53, John 6, 53, I'll pick up in 52. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man, Jesus, give us his flesh to eat? Because in verse 51, Jesus says, I give for the life of the world my flesh. And so the Jews are confused. And it gets worse. Verse 53, Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father... So he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. Jesus is talking about the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood. How did the Jews to whom he's speaking respond? Verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Verse 60, many therefore of his disciples when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? The reason it's such a difficult statement, okay, is it may be disgusting in your ears to think about the drinking of blood. But for a Jew, it was worse than that. It was not just disgusting. It was literally prohibited by Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. Jesus in John 6 is shocking his hearers. 
by telling them that his flesh must be eaten and his blood must be drunk. And what does that mean? Well, in the context of John chapter 6, it means that we must believe in Jesus, the one whom God has sent, and we derive our life from his life because the life is in the blood. And when Jesus spills his blood and spills his life on behalf of sinners, that life comes into us. But the Jews, before Pentecost, before they have the Spirit, they don't understand. And they will not understand until after Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost. But the point here is this. The life of Jesus, the life he gave as a sacrificial substitute in our place, it must be imbibed by us that we might have eternal life. That's what he's saying. We must believe him, trust in him, trust in his finished work on behalf of sinners, that it is sufficient for us to have eternal life. Just three chapters earlier, John says this, and you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. And so eating and drinking is believing and trusting in Christ for our life. He literally is our life blood. Verse 15, and when any person eats an animal which dies, by the way, that is understood to be an animal which dies a natural death, one that is not slaughtered. When any person eats an animal which dies of natural causes or is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or an alien, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and remain unclean until evening, then he will become clean. And so we see, again, coming into um, contact with something that is dead, which we saw during um, Leviticus 11 through 15, uh, causes a person to become unclean. And so there's a cleansing ritual which has to happen. One other comment I want to make as we close out Leviticus chapter 17 this evening. If you would turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. There's something at the Council of Jerusalem that I want to point out that is also related to Leviticus 17. The Council at Jerusalem. And I will uh, pick up in verse 13 and um, read through verse 20. Acts chapter 15. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. That's a quote from Amos chapter 9. 
Verse 19, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are returning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. Okay? And so, what's happening here? Okay? An animal which is strangled, its blood is not let out. Its meat still has the blood in it. And so, in these very formative years of the church growing among Jews and Gentiles, the council at Jerusalem sees fit to, to encourage the Gentiles who are turning to Christ not to eat meat that is strangled. So why? Why? Pastor Mike actually preached on this. So that the Gentiles do not offend the Jews by eating meat that has blood in it. Okay, That's what's going on there in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, verse 20. Because the Jews would be clearly offended by the eating of meat that was strangled and not slaughtered by slitting its throat and letting its blood. All right? And so there's some wisdom here coming from James and the Jerusalem Council to keep the peace in this fledgling church which is composed of both Jews and Gentiles. And it goes all the way back to Leviticus 17 and the prohibition of God to not for the Jews not to eat meat that contained its life blood okay so coming out of Leviticus 16 and 17 the day of atonement and then this lifeblood atonement discussion here in Leviticus 17 beginning in Leviticus 18 we will turn to the holiness code so a few um, discussions back I talked about how things can be uh, common things can be clean and unclean but there was also a difference between common things and profane things. Right? And so we spent 11 through 15, Leviticus 11 through 15, discussing common things and the distinctions between clean and unclean. And then we moved into the peak of the Pentateuch with the Day of Atonement and the Lifeblood Atonement in Leviticus 16 and 17 as the tabernacle itself needed to be cleansed because of the corpses of Nadab and Abihu. And now, now that the cleansing rites have been prescribed by God in Leviticus 11 through 17, all the way up to and including the cleansing of the tabernacle itself by the Day of Atonement, now we turn to that third aspect of what's necessary for a holy God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. Remember, it's a house, a holy house. It's atoning sacrifices to cover the sins of the sinful people. And the third aspect is where we are going. We are now going to pivot towards the holiness code that will draw a distinction between those things which are holy and profane. And there will be some controversial things in there. Should not be controversial for us, but controversial in our culture. But that is where we are headed in the last 11 chapters of Leviticus as we turn to the Holiness Code.